All right. This morning is Sunday. It's February 4th. It's 2007. We have a title this morning that is in Hebrew. Now, I'm a southerner, and most of my life has been spent in either Texas or Louisiana, some brief diversions to California. So I probably don't speak Hebrew very well. So I'm going to spell these for you as well. The sermon title this morning is Cal, K-A-L, they, E-Y, Com, C-H-O-M-E-R, Cal, they, Comer. Cal, they, Comer roughly translates to the light and the heavy. But before we get into what Cal, they, Comer is and why we teach on a subject in Hebrew, I wanted to ask you some things about maps. Anybody in here ever been lost and had to navigate from a map? Yeah, y'all can talk to me. I'll cry if you don't. Yes. Before the days of Tom-Toms and all of our GPS systems, people actually had to learn to read a map. And uh, people like Adam and Eagle Scouts would get dropped off in one place, be given a map and a compass, and told to go to another place. You know, that works fairly well in small areas. But if you have to travel across the globe, there's a principle that becomes important. It's called magnetic declination. Did you know that when you hold a compass in your hand and it points north, it does not point to the North Pole? That's a misnomer. We were all told, hey, a compass points north. A compass does in general point north. But the magnetic fields over the North Pole and the South Pole are not truly due north and due south. In fact, there's an angular displacement. I'm not going to draw on the board today. <laughs> yeah, I don't draw, draw well. If you're looking at a globe, the geographical North Pole is an imaginary line that we draw through the axis of the Earth. And it points in a different direction as it goes around the solar system always as the Earth moves. That is a fixed place that actually moves as the Earth moves. What your compass points to is something called magnetic north. And if you're traveling a great distance, say from the equator trying to find the North Pole, and you only went where the compass pointed, you would not get there. In fact, if you've ever taken a compass, looked into the northern sky, and looked for the, uh, what do we call that, North Star, the compass doesn't always point right at it. Sometimes you can be as much as 45 degrees off. So if you're going to travel a great distance, you have to constantly adjust for this magnetic declination. In other words, your compass points you in the right way, but you have an inability to follow exactly. You're not quite sophisticated enough without some help. So people that make maps put in the maps a legend. Say, when you're here, your magnetic declination, declination is so many degrees. Because what happens is if you start off a degree or two off, by the thousandth mile, you are a long ways from your target. You understand that? If we begin building in here and the first wall is not square, by the time we go to put the roof on, we have a bigger problem than we did at first. Have you ever been building something and in a corner? It was maybe a quarter of an inch out of square, but by the time you got to the next corner, it was a couple feet. You know? This small variance in the beginning causes big, big problems later. One of the problems with our church history is from the very beginning, we were pointed in the right way, we had some magnetic declination. We had some angular variance between the true way that God pointed and the way that we naturally felt led. And without making periodic course adjustments, we end up in a place God never intended for us to go. I want to give you a definition. I have been reading this book, Jesus the Jewish Theologian. It's by a doctor named Brad Young who spent his life in Israel. The, uh, he gives for Torah. Y'all know what Torah is? In general, when we say Torah, we're talking about the law given by God. It can specifically mean the first five books, or it can be a more general concept that means all instruction from God. So it can either mean five books, or it can mean the whole Older Testament, including the New. When we want to refer to the 39 books of the Older Testament, we use the word Tanakh. Y'all probably lost all of that. But listen, the Hebrew word Torah is derived from the root yara which means to shoot an arrow or to teach torah means teaching or instruction that is true and straight as if the words of torah 
are shot in a direct path like an arrow with power and force for living life to the fullest. Torah is the divine aim for the people who love God. Torah means God's will, including but going over and beyond the ink dried upon the scrolls fully writ. What I'm trying to say is that scholars, as they look into the Hebrew word Torah, it means that God gave you instruction to get you from point A to point B, to show you His divine will for you. It was like an arrow being shot at something. This was a good thing. If you're lost, are you happy to have a compass? Yeah. Now, what has happened is our concept of the word Torah that translates into English as law has become somewhat different. When I say, ooh, Matthew had a run-in with the law. Remember that old song? I fought the law. Steve remembers it. Yeah. If I say Matthew had a run-in with the law, that means something different to us, doesn't it? That's not a good thing, is it? If Matt had a run-in with the law, that meant he ran into somebody that had the power to impose penalty upon him. He ran into somebody who had the power to put him in jail. He ran into somebody that had the power to do harm to him. Is that the purpose of our law enforcement, to do harm? No, it's not the purpose, but for some people that is exactly what they find in it. When are you happy to find the law? When you need help, right? So can we say that even in English, law means different things to different people at different times in their life? Well, to the Hebrews, they were in slavery in Egypt. And God revealed His divine law. He showed them a direction, a way to live, like shooting an arrow that would give them power and force for life to know and do what is right. The fact that not all did that doesn't make the original aim bad. Even, in, even when we're trying to navigate to the North Pole, we have to make periodic adjustments. In fact, it would be good if somebody came before you and said, wow, this is the way. You have a compass, but this is how you use it. Every so often, you need to make a course adjustment here. I know the compass points this way, but what it really intended for you to do is to be able to see this and make an adjustment. Does that make sense to you? Good. Y'all in Psalm 147? I told you to go there before. In Psalm 147, I want you to hear these words. Verse 19, speaking of uh, God. Actually, let's start in verse 18. He sends His Word and melts them. He stirs up His breezes and the waters flow. He has revealed His Word to Jacob, His laws and decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation. They do not know His laws. There is one nation on the planet with which God shot His words like an arrow with power and force, giving His words in their language, in their customs, in their lives so that they would see it and get an idea for the direction of God. There was a purpose for this. Deuteronomy teaches that in doing this for the one nation, the fourth chapter of Deuteronomy says, all the nations would see. They would marvel. Now, if you take a poll in the United Nations, though, right? If you gathered all of the countries that are a part of the United Nations and said, hey, the descendants of Jacob are today known as Israel. Their law was given to them by God to show wisdom and understanding to the nations. How do you feel about Israel? Is Israel overwhelmingly popular among the United Nations? No, it's not. Because when you lay down a standard of any kind, people have various reactions to it, just like a budget, right? One person sees a budget and goes, Wow, I have this much money to spend. Woohoo! Ashley does that. She's a, no, she, she, people get excited when they know what they have. Others look at it and go, You are kidding me. My, my groceries are 300 bucks. That's it? How can I do that? One sees in it restriction in the standard and the other finds freedom to do something in the standard. In large part, the people of God carrying the standard of God have shown the world restriction rather than freedom. All the world has seen it is what they cannot do instead of the good that God allows us to do. I got born again in 1993. My vision of the church was a bunch of effeminate men and ugly women. Does that surprise you? I'm so glad to find out that's not true. Men in the Bible are men. Men in the church can be men. Women are radiant and beautiful because the Word of God makes them radiant and beautiful. 
But my ideas about the church growing up around it in America were not good. In fact, I remember seeing some years ago Bart Simpson. Y'all know him, right? He's reading a Bible on his couch in this cartoon. And he says, how boring, and throws the Bible to the side. Unfortunately, we have taught in our actions that the Bible is boring. People would rather read Harry Potter. You know, the book of Acts has snake bites, raising from the dead in it, shadows healing people, demons being cast out, people being struck dead, somebody being eaten by worms. That reads like a Hollywood movie plot. How many Christians do you think even know that? Something is wrong. We are not pointing the way that we were supposed to point. And so I wanted to re-examine this. God gave His special revelation to one nation, earth. Turn with me to the book of Romans. There are a few of these that I want you to turn to, and some I'll just read you because there's a bunch. In the book of Romans in the third chapter, if you get to the New Testament, this would be Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Romans, and we're going to be in the third chapter. If you did not bring your Bible, this is much like not having your compass. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? He said, why be these special people that God received or gave His revelation to? Why keep those customs? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar. It is true that the nation of Israel in large part has done many things wrong. Easy to see that in their lives, isn't it? How about your life, though? How long have you said that you're a Christian? Following the words and deeds of Christ, and everybody in here agrees that Jesus is perfect. He's the right way. How long have you called yourself a Christian? And if we examine your life, how much of it does not point north, so to speak? So we can look at that nation and go, oh, wow, those bad Jews. And that's what theologians have done for 2,000 years. This is why the Jewish population is scared to death when a movie comes out that portrays the Jewish leadership as handing Jesus over to the Romans to be killed, even though it's historically accurate. That's because it's all they've ever seen from Christians. All they've ever seen from Christians is that we think that they're bad people. I would submit to you today that the Bible teaches something really different and that you can learn powerful life lessons from this difference. Paul said that there was an advantage in every way to being Jews. Now, I want to tell you, you can't become a Jew. If you weren't born as a descendant of Jacob, you're a Gentile. We have a completely different role. It was one nation that God gave His special revelation to. From that one nation, the other nations were supposed to learn something. We found out in the 11th chapter of Romans that you can be grafted into many of their promises. That does not mean that you replace them. That does not mean you become them. You can graft an apple tree onto a pear tree. It can be done. I've even seen it with my own eyes. It doesn't change the fruit that it bears. I, in fact, have seen one apple tree bearing many different kinds of fruit. Some guy grafted that on as an example. I think he had 14 different kinds of apples growing on one tree. One tree, but different kinds of fruit. It did not change it. The fact that we participate in a Jewish religion by following Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, does not change the kind of fruit that we bear. I'm not teaching that we become Jews. Now that we have that out of the way, I want to cover something in Romans 7. Go ahead and turn there. I want us to begin to get a right perspective on the law, and then I'm going to teach something that relates to that magnetic declination that you'll like. Even if you don't like it, it'll be good. I want you to understand something. You believing or not believing, you liking or disliking, does not change what is true and what is not. Have you ever met people that were sincere? Right? Don't mistake sincerity for truth. I can sincerely believe that there is not a glass window pane in front of me. And yet when I run into it, no matter how sincere my belief, my nose will break. Y'all ever seen somebody commit to running through something and find out there's glass window? You've never been there, have you? I was running from a parking lot one time, stepped onto a slick pavement and slid right into a window glass I couldn't see was there. That hurt, right? Was I not committed? Was I not sincere? 
You might say I was sincerely deluded. I believed that there was no window pane there. I found out I was wrong. Many people's idea about religion is this way. Oh, well, they are sincere. Those little guys ride the bikes and have the white shirts. They're sincere. The people that go to conferences constantly and knock on your door and tell you about a corrupted word for Yahweh, they're sincere. That does not make them right. Nor are we right because we're Americans. My whole life, my culture around me has been American. And yet that's not the compass that God gave us. The compass that God gave us came out of the nation of Israel. It doesn't matter whether you like that or not. It's the compass God gave us. It doesn't matter whether the Jews you've met have been nice to you or not. It's the compass that God gave us. In Romans 7, Paul begins speaking about this law, this instruction that was shot like an arrow. And starting in the seventh verse, he says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? He's been having this long discussion about people that approach the compass, the ruler, the law in the wrong way. They thought that by having it, they were holy instead of by using it. They thought that their ability to use it made them holy. None of those things are true. God gave them this to show them the right way to walk while they waited for God to make them righteous and holy. You understand? Salvation's not different in the Older Testament than the New. Salvation's no different in the year 1 B.C. than it was in the year 35 A.D. Salvation is by faith in faith alone. Always has been by trusting God. But part of your trust in God shows up in the way that you act. In fact, I would say that most of your trust shows up in the way that you act. David can say that he trusts me all day long, but if he does nothing that I ask him to do, does he really trust me? Ladies, you ever bought a cookbook? No, nobody in this church cooks. Patricia, you own a cookbook, don't you? When you begin to bake a cake, right? Or bake whatever it is. You bake all kind of beautiful things. And she turns to a cookbook and she opens it. She begins reading something that is a recipe. She has to put a certain level of trust in the author of that recipe. She has to believe that when he says three measures of flour and one measure of salt, that that was right, that it was based on experience, and that it produces a result. If she doesn't believe it, she varies from the recipe, and she has something other than what the author intended. Most of the time, we look at the Bible, and we go, wow, that's neat, but I'd like to change some of the recipe. I know it says love unconditionally, but I would like to love with a few conditions. I love people who love me. I love people who are nice to me. I will love people that deserve it. How about that? I will trust people that deserve it. I know you all have never heard those things. Never felt that way. Never. Paul says, what should we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. The law is like an arrow shot showing you the right way to walk. You wouldn't know you were off the path if the law was not given. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had said, not said, do not covet. But sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of coveted desire. Have you ever wondered what that meant? I spent hours wondering what this meant. What Paul is saying, when the right way from God was revealed to me, when I saw directly what I was supposed to do, I found out that this gave me an opportunity not to do it. There was a time period when I really didn't know. I was grasping around in the darkness. But I was alive. Now all of a sudden, God's told me what I must do to live. And I found out I don't always do it. Sin seized the opportunity of this commandment and used it to put Him to death. Verse 9. Once I was, apart, I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very thing that was intended to bring life actually brought death. I want you to hear that. The law was intended to bring life. Ten times in the book of Deuteronomy. Ten. Not nine, not eleven. Ten times. God says, I want you to do this, some portion of the law, so that it will go well with you and your children. Saints, I want you to understand that God has never told man to do anything except for the purpose of He desires something good for you. He was trying to show us the right way to walk, trying to show us the right way to hit the target so that we would find life. And yet, all we can see in it sometimes is restriction. If I'm a Christian, 
I can't do this. And I can't do that. And then you go to a church that reinforces this. They say, hey, now that you're a Christian, throw away this. Throw away that. Don't do this. Don't do that. And Christians suddenly become defined by all of the things that we don't do. Instruction from God was never that. It was intended to show us the right things to do. If things were placed in a negative context, it was only to keep you from straying off of the path. Watch this. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin... It produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Put yourself back out in the wilderness. You have your compass, but you have no map, right? You have a compass. You know that in general it points north, and you've been told to go to the North Pole. After some weeks and months, you would be very frustrated because you have something that's pointing you in the right direction, but you don't have everything that you need to make it work. You don't know how to handle the magnetic declination. Well, inside of you is something very similar. It's an inclination to what is evil. When told what is right, when told the right way to go, there is a part of you that naturally wants to bear off course. In reading what is right, we have a tendency to make it our own interpretation, don't we? I love that scene in Dumb and Dumber. I know none of you would ever watch a movie like Dumb and Dumber, <laughs> but I happen to love it. My stepfather, who's watching with us, loves it. He watches it a lot. And Jim Carrey is talking with this woman that he thinks is beautiful. Her name's something Swanson. And uh, he says, I need to know. I just need to know. Level with me. Tell me the truth. Do we have a chance? Do we have a chance together, you and I? She says, well, uh, she's struggling, needs an answer. He goes, I mean, is there a shot? She goes, one in a million. He goes, so there is a chance. He heard in that what he wanted to hear. How many times have we looked into the Word, and though it's written there in plain English in our case, we have seen in it what we wanted to see. Human beings have always been this way. We needed more help than just pointing in the right direction. We needed somebody to demonstrate it. Deuteronomy 30.15, you don't need to turn to. It says, I set before you life and death today in these decrees. Life and prosperity if you do what is right. Death and destruction if you do what is wrong. In the law, we have a complicated creature. In the law, we have something which both shows you the right that you should do and shows you... What happens if you do the wrong that you should not do? The law serves multiple functions. When addressing people that have clung to the law and said, wow, by possessing this law, we're righteous. By holding on to this law, we're righteous. Paul constantly points out the negative aspect of it. No, that law shows you how far you are from God. That law shows you what a sinner you are. That law shows you how far off course you really are. But when addressing people that don't have this legalistic perversion of the law, you hear the law is good. Using it rightly is good. Looking into the perfect law brings freedom. You hear all of these things. It was this way from the very beginning. Deuteronomy 30 verse 15 says it will produce two things in you. Paul tells his young squire, Timothy, the law is good if someone uses it properly. But you need to remember it was written for lawbreakers. What did that mean? How can the law be good but be written for lawbreakers? Some have taken this verse and gone, wow, anybody that clings to the law then is an amoral person. That's like somebody being lost in the desert and claiming that if you need a compass, it just validates how lost you are. As if you weren't lost by not having that compass. See, it was given to one nation as an example for the others. They were clinging with all of their heart to it and still didn't hit the target. What does that mean about you? 
who have not been clinging to it with all of your heart. It means we are all equally in need of grace. It doesn't make the compass bad. It means we're all equally in need of grace. James 1.22 begins to speak about the law as perfect in bringing freedom. Deuteronomy 4 says that in following the law, the nation of Israel would show wisdom and understanding to everywhere around them. In Deuteronomy 5, God speaking says, oh, that their hearts would be inclined. you know that the Bible actually says that? Oh, it's O-H, God sighs. It says that their hearts would be inclined to follow me, that it would go well with them and their children. That's Deuteronomy 5.29. In Deuteronomy 12.28, he says it again. He says, if only they would keep my decrees and my commandments, then they would know the good that they should do, and it would go well with them and their children. Over and over and over, God begins to point and show us the right way to live. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 17. Let's get into Calvay Comer. What is cow? Y'all remember? Light. What is Comer? Heavy. Light and the heavy. Tell me when you're in Deuteronomy 17. Adam, turn on that air. I'm dying. Deuteronomy 17. In the instruction from God, there is this sentence. It's Deuteronomy 17, starting in verse 16. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from the priests who are Levites. It's to be with him. And he goes on to say that this king supposed to write these very words, carry it on his person. Do you think God was trying to get a message to him if he wanted to carry the words of this law on his person? Yes? Y'all can answer me. I'll get my feelings hurt if you don't. Yes. How much more if he writes that word on your heart is he trying to get your attention? This very word, a Jewish rabbi named Simeon ben Yochai, means Simon, son of life, commented on. It was a teaching prior to the day of Jesus. And they said that Solomon was so wise that in his great learning, when he read this, when he had this written on a scroll, he looked at it and he said, Oh, my goodness. Look at this. What is God trying to teach? He said, I can't have horses. I can't have gold. And I can't have lots of wives. Are you all beginning to see any irony in who's thinking about this? Okay, good. He said, I can't have all of these things. Why, though? Because God doesn't want my heart to go astray, he said. So the rabbi began teaching, and this was a humorous teaching meant to show drastic contrast. The smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet is a yod. A yod looks a little bit like an accent mark. That's it, right there. Yod is the first letter in Yeshua, in the name Jesus. And when Solomon was reading this command in Hebrew, it says, you shall not multiply for yourself horses. You shall not multiply for yourself wives. You shall not multiply for yourself. And by the way, if you're reading a King James, they left that translation as multiply. That word is your bed. Y-A-R-B-E-D. Your bed. When he starts to look at this, he goes, you know, if just that little accent mark, just this little letter Yod was not there... Then it would say, the king must multiply for himself wives. He must multiply for himself horses. And he must multiply for himself silver and gold. See, by changing this one little stroke of a pen in the law, what began to happen is Solomon, through the wisdom of biblical instruction, said, what is God after? God's after me not having my heart led astray. And after all, this is a tiny little mark here. If this one mark is not there, it begins to change another word in there in Hebrew named lo, which means not. And then it begins to change the whole interpretation 
of this passage, and suddenly what we find is justification in this passage for having silver and horses and lots of it. Doesn't that seem silly to you? It seems silly to its first century hearers too. This was being taught in the Hebraic schools during the time Jesus was a child. This was a story that would illustrate how man in all of his wisdom could make the smallest change in the law and they had a word for it. They said, when you change the smallest letter in the law, you destroy it. You destroy its intent. You destroy the whole thing. By changing something minor, it will eventually lead to changing something major. Y'all understanding that? They're teaching about this magnetic declination. They're teaching that if you make the smallest course adjustment that is wrong early on, by the time you get a long ways away from it, it is a huge variance. They taught the children this about Solomon because he was a preeminent figure in Israeli history. This would be like us teaching about George Washington. In fact, in their story, because they taught it to kids, they would tell the kids, now this little yod in this word, your bed, left and it went up to the kingdom of God and it sat before the throne. And it said to God, Yahweh, Solomon has destroyed me and he has killed your law. That's how they taught it to the children. And they heard this story when they were little about how the smallest stroke of the pen being eliminated by Solomon killed the law. Simon ben Yochai begins writing about this and explaining it. If that were not there, we wouldn't know this. But he says that this was done for generations. Simon's writing in the year 130 A.D. But he's writing about times prior to our arrival of Yeshua. Changing one small thing made the biggest difference. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 19. I want to show you another principle. Then we go to the New Testament. In Deuteronomy 19... Starting in verse 11. David, would you write something for me on the board? Thank you. Y'all in Deuteronomy 19.11? You thoroughly asleep. I'll never forget being in Starbucks and talking to another pastor. And he says, where are you preaching from today? I said, the book of Micah, the second chapter in the 13th verse. He goes, wow, you're putting them to sleep, huh? And I wonder, have you ever read the book of Micah? And then I realized he probably hadn't. We need to break the old paradigm that says anything that is in the 39 books of the Older Testament is wrong or it's old or it's obsolete. In fact, you'll find out today that there's not a concept in the Newer Testament that did not originate in the Older. I'm going to read some words to you and I'll tell you what to write. In Deuteronomy 19, verse 11, it says, But if a man hates... Hate. If a man hates his neighbor and lies in wait lies in wait for him assaults assaults and kills kills him yeah right a lot but if a man hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him assaults and kills him and then flees to one of the cities the elders of his town shall send for him bring him back from the city and the hand and hand him over to the avenger of blood to die kill uh, assaults kills yeah, assaults goes before kills. Yeah, just erase kills. Or, yeah. What we see in this verse in Deuteronomy 19.11, we find out from the rabbis, they saw something. You look at these Hebrew verbs for hates, lies, waits, assaults, kills. They saw a natural progression. To hate somebody was a fairly minor thing. You might say that that was a call a light or insignificant matter, K-A-L, call. But to kill somebody, is that a minor thing? Is it? To kill someone, is that a minor thing, Gabe? No. That was a homer, a heavy matter, a weighty matter, a significant matter. And what they saw in this verse is that hate leads to premeditation. That thinking on your hate leads to assault. Assault leads to murder. They saw in the Scripture, in the way from God, that there was a natural progression from the light to the heavy. So in Jesus' day, in addition to this story about Solomon eliminating the smallest stroke of a pen and destroying or abolishing the law, 
They also taught that by yielding or sinning in the smallest command, it would eventually lead to the worst or most significant commands. Are you all with me so far? Have I laid so much groundwork that you won't be able to follow it? Watch this. It all comes in one paragraph in the New Testament. Turn with me to Matthew, the fifth chapter. (laughs) All right, now I want you to remember that lying leads to assault. In Matthew, the fifth chapter. Jesus was Swedish, right? No, he was American, right? Jesus was Jewish. But he was a Jew born in New York City, wasn't he? No? Born in Los Angeles. No, Miami. There's lots of Jews in Miami. Jesus was from Miami, right? No. Jesus was not an American. Jesus was not shaped by Western seminaries. And friends, we can privately say, thank God. Jesus was shaped by the history of Judaism. He was birthed out of a culture that taught certain things and He was not removed from it. In fact, God chose to reveal Him in this culture. Jesus was Jewish. And birthed on the story of Solomon, birthed on the idea that breaking the smallest command leads to breaking the greatest command, Jesus had these words. In the 17th verse of the 5th chapter of Matthew. By the way, Matthew. Matthew. He was from Czechoslovakia. No? That's right. I forgot. Matthew was from San Salvador. Matthew was where from? Israel. How about that? Would you say that certain cultures have their own unique little idioms? Well, what's an idiom? Every time I talk to Devin, you awake back there, aren't you, brother? That's good. Every time I talk to Devin, I learn that the English language is constantly in a state of flux. Because he teaches me words that I didn't know existed. Every few years, what is our common speech begins to change. Early on, they taught children that there was a difference between the word the and the word the. And some teachers preferred one and then the other, but it became so common to use either that there was no difference anymore. Early on, when you punctuated a series of three things that was equal, you had three commas followed by the word and. Eventually, that third comma just kind of faded out. And now it's taught either way. The English language is in a constant state of change. And if you're not in the culture of the day, not only born in America, but born in America during a certain time, how would you know these things? In fact, think about these phrases. Dude, that's cool. Would that mean something different in the 1930s than it did in the 1990s? How about this one? You've got to be kidding me. Do you literally mean that they were telling you jokes? Shut up. Shut your mouth. Do you really mean that you want them to be quiet? No. These are expressions, aren't they? When Steve tells me something that's funny and I say, shut up! What I mean is, come on, man, that's funny. That's hard to believe. Isn't it? How about this one? Lindy says something. I go, get out of here! Do I really want her to get up and leave the premises? So, think about translating this into some other tongue. Dude, that's cool. Come on, you've got to be kidding me. Get out of here. Shut your mouth. How would you translate that? This is how I have every conversation with some of the young people. I have no idea what they're talking about. How would you like to be a foreigner and hear this kind of slur? Well, in Jesus' day, there were expressions. And they meant something literally. That's cool. That lacks temperature. But they also meant something based on their context in speech. That's cool. And the subtle inflections in the way that they spoke it made a difference. One of the problems, though, is that they were Hebrews. The manuscripts that we have are preserved in Greek and then translated into all the other languages of the world. If you had to take that phrase that I gave you and translate it into Spanish and from Spanish to German and from German to some Inuit language, 
in outer Mongolia. How hard would that be? And yet there is a right way. There is something that God was shooting at the entire time. Verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Every Jew hung his hat on the law. Every Jew saw the law as their civil constitution for their nation, as well as the direction for leading a vibrant, full, abundant life. Because this was given from God as an arrow, showing them the right way to walk, showing them the right path to be on. It would have been absurd for him to say, don't think I've come to abolish it. Nobody in a million years would have thought Jesus was standing up as a Jew advocating throwing away the very thing that their nation was founded on for 1,600 years. In fact, you'll hear on Fox News sometimes, somebody from the right and somebody from the left arguing, and they say, oh, dude, he wants to throw out the Constitution. That's an absurd thought for an American. An American is somebody who has placed a great deal of faith in the Constitution. What they're really saying is, by his interpretation, it's as if he threw away the Constitution. This phrase in Hebrew is no different. He says, don't think that I've come to destroy, to ruin with my interpretation, the law. I've not come to ruin it with my interpretation. I've come to uphold it. I've not come to destroy it. I've come to fulfill it. Watch, this gets clearer. I'll tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter. Does anybody know what the smallest letter in Hebrew is? The Yod. Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Could it be that Jesus had heard this story about Solomon? That all of the hearers had heard the story where Solomon destroyed the law through a bad interpretation by removing the yod. In his life, did it show up as destruction? Yes. He did everything the law told him not to. How did it go for Solomon? Not very well, did it? You know where the United Nations is in Israel, by the way? It's on a hill where Solomon sacrificed people to an unknown God because his wives had led him astray. It's called the Hill of Unfaithfulness. You know, that's where the United Nations is in Israel today? Isn't that interesting? There are no coincidences, are there? Jesus knew that they knew the story. And what He's saying to them is, I won't destroy the Torah through bad interpretation. I won't eliminate even the smallest letter from it. I am here to place it on firmer footing. I am here to show you how to read it correctly. Look at verse 19. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Least and great. Calve Comer. He's saying, anybody who teaches you to break the least of the commandments. You remember that hate led to lying in wait, which led to assaulting, which led to killing? He's saying... Anybody that teaches you to disregard even the smallest commandments is going to be thrown out of the kingdom of heaven because that disregard for the smallest thing in the Word will eventually lead you astray. But anybody that teaches you to observe the smallest commandment will be called great because in observing the smallest one, you never get to the bad ones. He was teaching a principle here, one that they understood. Watch how much more sense this continues to make. I'm going to start from the beginning again. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law, which means to destroy it by interpretation, or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, uphold them through a right interpretation. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not even a yod like what Solomon did, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness passes that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What a blinding indictment. 
What he's saying is that they do these things. He's saying, guys, I'm here to show you how to interpret the word correctly. You have a compass before you, but you don't know how to read it. You don't know how to adjust for your own sinful nature. You don't know how to get at the real intention. I'm showing you how to adjust things because I'm going to walk it out perfectly. In fact, I'm going to go where you've never gone before so that I can show you the way there. That's what he's teaching. Listen to how he says this and how he puts the Torah on firmer footing. In verse 21, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. What has he just done? He said, You've heard that this, you shall not murder, is bad. That's the weightiest of commands. Don't kill your brother. He said, but I'm telling you, you have to pay attention to the very smallest of commands because one leads to the other. This is a principle called Cal Vecomer, and they all understood it. And sometimes for particular fun, they would contrast the weighty and the light. And they would say things like, hey, is it bad to pluck out an eye? Oh, yeah, that's bad. Not half as bad as going with your whole body into hell. And they understood through these word plays what he was saying is, pay attention to the small things so that the weighty things don't happen to you. Boy, how the church needs to hear this. Do you remember the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation? One of the letters he says, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Return and do the things that you did at the beginning. Boy, when you were first born again, when you first feel that freedom from sin and you are excited, you will do anything for Jesus. You would pay attention to the smallest commands. But at some point in your life, because of your maturity and your learning, you find out how to abuse God's grace, how to laugh in His face. Oh, nobody would do that, but we do it with our actions. Forgive me, Lord. I have no intention of stopping it, but I still would like Your forgiveness. This is totally unbiblical. In fact, the whole church has gotten so far away from understanding the Torah in its right sense. Said things like, oh, just be led by the Spirit. What is it that you think the Spirit will lead you to do? He'll lead you to follow the Torah. That's what He does. So, well, Eric, why then do you not have ringlets? Why then do you not have a kippah? Why don't you have phylacteries? I'm a Gentile. I was never in Jacob. I've been grafted into some of Jacob's blessings, but I've never replaced Jacob. So, well, are you saying those guys have to do that? No, I'm all worried about me. I'm not at all worried about what they do or don't have to do. I believe that the Holy Spirit's given to them just like us so that they figure out in Yeshua what they need to do to remain cultural Jews and what they don't. But one thing I'm certain of, dependence on the law won't save anybody. It's just showing you how to walk rightly. It won't save you. Only God saves you. Does that seem balanced to you? Brad Young, by the way, this author that I'm reading, I found out the International Standard Biblical Encyclopedia, usually abbreviated ISBE. This is the favorite electronic biblical program for most people. It's found in PC Study Bible. It's also found in Zondervan's electronic biblical studies groups. In fact, most pastors, all the ones that I've ever sat under, read from it. Brad Young contributed large portions to it. And here's how he says about this passage. Jesus did not cancel the Torah. He put it on firmer footing by interpreting it correctly. Jesus didn't ever want you to get to a place where you would consider murdering, so He said, don't even get angry. He was teaching us how to walk it rightly. And then He, exa- he did it for us. Look at this. Verse 23, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. 
I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penalty. He's saying breaking even the smallest commands will carry a penalty with it. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to throw, be thrown into hell. And he goes on to say the same thing about the hand. This was a principle firmly ensconced in the teaching system of his day. He's saying if you would consider it a heavy matter to tear out your eye, how much heavier would it be to be thrown into hell? In light of that, tearing out your eye would be light. Going to hell is really what is heavy. This is because they had learned this progression from Deuteronomy 19.11. It's because they had heard the stories about Solomon. Do you think that we have an obligation then to find out about the culture that the Bible was written in and to rightly interpret it? The moral to this story is that not having God's Spirit, not having the way of Jesus showing you what the Scripture means to you in this moment does nothing to save you. In fact, you can look at it, think that you have the compass, and all that you have done is justify being lost. Tell me that's not where most of America is. They possess the Bible. They possess some knowledge of God. But are they walking in the direction that God says to walk? How about you? How are you doing with that? Turn with me to the book of James. This is our last scripture today. In the book of James, in the first chapter, I want to read you a couple things. First, I want to read starting in the 19th verse. Then we're going to back up from there. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. For a man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. If it was morally filthy in the first century when James, who was a physical brother and therefore a Jew, a descendant of Jacob, physical brother of Jesus, if it was morally filthy in his day in Israel when he's writing, how much more morally filthy do you think it is today? Do you think we are closer or further from the original arrow shot? Probably further, right? And he said that the word, the Torah, planted in them could save them. Can a compass save your life? Sure. Merely possessing a compass, will that save your life? Not at all. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the Word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the... What's that word? Perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he heard but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. What should your prayer be after hearing that? Your prayer should be that you are able to apply the word that you hear. Your prayer should be that you would rightly interpret it for your life. The Jews called that walking with God. And Jesus came to show us the right way to interpret the word and walk with God. But the only word that they had was the Older Testament. The only one. And it was ensconced in teachings like the one about Solomon and the Yod, and the one about the light and the heavy, Calve Comer. In fact, so much so that just prior to this in the book of James, starting in the 13th verse, you hear these words. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. 
Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. Where did James get an idea like this about the progression of sin? Could it be that he had the book of Deuteronomy memorized and he knew that hating led to premeditation and premeditation to action and enough action would lead to death? Oh, I think so. Because he was trained just like Rabbi Yeshua in this. And he was warning people. Guys, we've put that on our wall in this church. We call it James' pyramid of sin and death. Your desires, if they're left unchecked, lead to an enticement to do something that is wrong. That enticement eventually leads you to do it. And if you do it enough, it will kill you. This has been a message from the very beginning because there is a natural inclination in us towards things that are not right. God did something for us, though. He said, I've shown you what is right, and you have an inability to keep it. Acknowledge that. Depend on me. Trust me. Fight to stay on course. I'm going to watch your effort. I'm going to look at the food of your life but I'm also going to give you my very character that perfectly interprets, my very character that perfectly empowers, my very character that will show you how to walk this out, and I'm going to put Him inside of you. Every Christian has the mind of Christ. Every Christian is intended to walk in the full power of the Spirit so that we can get it right. No longer do we have to say, Oh, wretched man that I am. Now we can say there is therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. He took a penalty for every wrong turn you have ever made from the law. Every degree of error from that right judgment that you were supposed to make that we call sin, He took the wages of. He took that upon Himself and you deserved it. It wasn't Him that didn't walk rightly with God. It was you. It wasn't Him that transgressed God's way. It was you. He never let hate grow into premeditation and into assault and into death. But how many times in traffic this week have you had the seeds of hate in your heart? He never did that, not even once. And the entire penalty of the law fell upon Him as a substitute for you who deserved it. Now we walk free from any penalty. There is no penalty that falls upon you for not getting it right. But all of the blessings, all of the right instruction, all of those things still remain. And we need to learn from it so that we don't insult His grace. So that we don't lessen that great price that He paid. Anybody ever see Passion of the Christ? Is that hard to watch? Why was it hard to watch? It was gruesome. It was bloody. It was horrible. It's like watching your best friend be beat up, right? Every Christian should have to face that moment in their life because that literally happened to a man. It happened to a man who was perfectly innocent. You think we ought to take this seriously, saints? We're all about to get very serious about a pigskin floating over chalk lines on the ground. We're going to bring food and celebrate. We'll set aside large portions of our day. And all over this nation, millions and millions of dollars will be spent in the pursuit of entertainment as millions and millions of people tune in to watch a boys' game, something that you teach children. Jesus never saw a football game. He never played it down. It was completely foreign to Him. He lived His life in a way to teach you how to walk. You'll pay all kind of attention to other things. But in the end, will you pay attention to what matters? That's the question. I'm not teaching you a life that is free from pleasure. I'm talking about a life that enjoys all of the right pleasures. A life that is full in every way. Knowing that you're walking with God and He's walking with you. Isn't that worth it? Stand up and let's pray. Would you say that you start off in life a very, very long ways from the kingdom of God? Further away than America is from Europe? further away than Africa is from the North Pole? If you don't make adjustments in your course along the way, you cannot get from Africa to the North Pole. If you don't make adjustments along the way, you can't even travel 200 miles in true north. You can pretend that you did. You can tell everybody that you did. 
You can look as if you are. But you can't do it. Too many of us in the kingdom have pretended to be walking rightly. We've set out in the general direction and followed the pack. And as it sways to its own deviations, not made the course adjustments. And so the world looks and says things like the church is full of hypocrites. Saints, when we stand up and walk rightly, the very word that we're talking about promises, everybody will stand back and go, wow, there's never been a people so blessed with wisdom and understanding that their God is with them. That's the aim of the Christian's life. The aim's not that you don't sin. The aim's not that you don't kill anybody. The aim is that you walk so rightly it gives others courage. And that when you get off course, you correct it. And you thank God for that grace. You don't use that as an excuse to go wherever you want to go and call it God. Get ready to pray.